You can open your Bibles to a few places. Romans 8, Matthew 6. Romans 8, Matthew 6. We took a break from our exposition of John to do a series on eldership. And today we're taking a break from our series on eldership to talk about God as our Heavenly Father. Romans 8, Matthew 6. So we'll look at a few other passages as well as we go along. I'm going to ask you a very loaded question in a moment. And that question is, what kind of relationship did you or do you have with your father that has the potential to stir up all kinds of emotions? Some of them may be very endearing, from love and fondness, perhaps, to anger and resentment. Of course, that all boils down to your experience. What kind of father did you have? How did you relate to him? Perhaps your dad was a very loving figure in your life, provided for you, gave you a continual sense of security. Or maybe he was intimidating, left you constantly on edge. Perhaps your father was tender, compassionate dad. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe your father was a key figure in your development and perhaps a a very meaningful in your life, or maybe he was just absent. Maybe you cherish your relationship with your father, or maybe there's lingering resentment. Perhaps you never had a relationship with him to start with. Increasingly, that seems to be the case with broken families and fatherlessness in our culture. And so that gives us a mandate for a message like this this morning, I think. Whatever your background, one thing is sure, your relationship with dad or lack thereof has fundamentally shaped your view of fatherhood. That's an issue for us as Christians. Your relationship with your dad has determined what you think of when we talk about fatherhood. As a Christian, this is important because, what? We know the Bible teaches that those who are Christians have become children of the Heavenly Father. We must consider how our experience with our earthly fathers influences the way we think of fathers because that's going to influence the way we think about God. If our earthly father was absent, apathetic, authoritarian, abusive, we may be guilty of projecting those characteristics upon God, and we need to divest ourselves of those ideas and allow Scripture to define fatherhood for us. We may be tempted to think about God as simply a magnified or a heavenly version of our earthly dad, which would be a gross error. For many of us coming from broken homes, absentee fathers, can we just do this? Raise your hand if you grew up uh, and your parents were divorced. Raise your hand if your parents were divorced. All right. Fewer than I thought. Good. Uh, and I would raise my hand up too, right? Uh, and so that, uh, that uh, impacts, doesn't it, your understanding of parenting and fatherhood. It's shaped your experience, and so not only have you had to learn biblically what a father is, but you've had to unlearn uh, based upon your experiences. And so for many of us coming from broken homes and absentee fathers or overtly abusive families, this means we've got to allow Scripture to fundamentally transform our understanding of what a father is. And again, we dare not view our Heavenly Father through the lens of our own experience, but should rather allow our view of Him to be entirely shaped by Scripture as He's revealed Himself to be. And so Romans chapter 8, we're going to start here. 
in verse 14. In this chapter, Paul is, uh, really he would have his readers understand that we are free from the condemnation of the law, that the hostility which once existed between us and God has been eliminated through Jesus Christ, and now we are free to uh, live according to the Spirit. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 14, in that context, he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if you're a woman here today, a daughter of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so here, what is the Lord telling us? That our relationship with God is really a relationship, as we're going to see, of love and security. He drives this point home in verse 15 by reminding us that God has given us what? The spirit of adoption. That is, not only is the enmity between us and God eliminated through Jesus Christ, but now He has adopted us into His family. He's made... Himself, our loving Heavenly Father, and we His children. And then in verse 15, one step further, He says that through His Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Man, I want to be careful with this, you know. Some people go a little bit too far, trying to talk about the informality of this term. Uh, but really what we learn is that our salvation goes far beyond simply a legal declaration or a uh, beyond justification and also includes adoption so that we are welcomed into relationship with God so that we can call Him Dad, we can call Him Father. And so through the Spirit, we cry, Father. God would have us learn to relate to Him as our Dad. Look in verse 16. It's the Spirit Himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, if you're a Christian this morning, the Spirit is continually working in you to assure you that you are His child and to help you grow in the knowledge and intimacy of that relationship. And so we have a mandate this morning as believers, as you grow spiritually, as I grow spiritually, we are to increasingly understand what it means that God is Father and what it means to lean into that relationship and uh, how that ought to affect our lives. You and I have been adopted by God the Father. Not only has He adopted us, but He's given us His Holy Spirit to constantly remind us of that new relationship and help us grow into it. And so as we grow, the Spirit within us will help us to continually grow in our love for and satisfaction with our Heavenly Father. Hopefully this message can serve that end. Not only this, but it's through the Spirit that we learn to cry, Abba, Father. That may be a challenge for some Jews. might seem a little bit informal and unusual for the Jews of the first century, a little bit too intimate, maybe a little too familiar for their liking. The point here is that an aspect of our salvation is that God has welcomed us into a tender, intimate, and loving relationship with Himself. Although He is the holy God of heaven, He invites us to come to Him with confidence. Like the child of a king who could crawl up into the lap of that king with freedom and with acceptance, without fear of reproach, without fear of rejection, free access to the loving Heavenly Father. We can have the confidence that God is our very own Father and that He delights to have us in His presence. 
this should not cause us to think that God is less holy. The fact that he has given us free access to himself or less deserving of fear or reverence. Instead, it should drive home the immensity of what Jesus has accomplished for us by dying for us on the cross. We now have free access to a loving relationship with the holy God of heaven because Jesus has destroyed the enmity that once existed between us. That's amazing. It should not cause us to downplay the holiness of God, but in awe of the freedom we now have, we simply cry out with thankfulness, Abba, Father. J.I. Packer said this. He said, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Those are some big statements by J.I. Packer. So some questions. Do you think of God as the distant one to be feared, or do you recognize God as your heavenly Father who has given you free access to intimate relationship with himself? Does that include a confidence that you can speak to him as your dad? As you learn to think about God as your heavenly Father, and as you approach him in prayer, try to remember that although he is holy, he welcomes you, speaks to you as a father would speak to his child, and invites you to speak to him as a child speaks to his father. We don't want to be flippant or irreverent in prayer, but we also want to be on guard against some uh, rigid formality, which really serves as a mechanism to create distance between us and God. And so, God is our Heavenly Father for Christians this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, there is enmity between you and God. Jesus Christ came to eliminate that enmity. You must place your faith and trust in in Christ, and the Bible says that He will bring you to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. And so we're going to explore what the Bible actually says a little bit about the character of God and how that ought to affect how we relate to Him. And as we look at these things, try to apply it, try to do a self-assessment, And so look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll start here. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to end up in Matthew 10. Eventually, we're going to end up in Hebrews. Try to track with us, and Justin will help you out with Scripture on the screen. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching people how to pray. We'll come back to prayer in a minute. But he begins by warning them to avoid the errors of the pagan religions, the hypocrites. Those who love to pray in public, those who like to offer repetitive prayers and so on. He then warns against, uh, again, praying those chant-like, repetitious prayers which don't really mean anything or amount to anything. Uh, Those who looked at prayer as a ritualistic duty which would gain them some hearing with the gods. In contrast to this, Jesus presents Christian prayer as a tender conversation between a child and his or her caring father a father who loves him and already knows everything that he has need of. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the the Gentiles do, 
for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And there, according to verse 8, the way we pray apparently is determined by the nature of the relationship we have with God. The way we pray is determined by both the nature of God and by the nature of the relationship we have with Him. Because He's a loving Father, we don't need to beg Him for attention. Because He already knows everything we have need of, we don't have to try desperately to secure provision from Him. Instead, what? When we pray, we can pour our hearts out to God. We can pour our hearts out to our Father with the confidence that He not only hears our needs, but is sensitive to our needs. He cares. We don't have to perform rituals or offer penance in order to gain a hearing with God because He delights to hear His children. He already knows. And and if He already knows what we have need of, then why pray at all? Well, when we pray, we're expressing faith in Him. When we pray, we're expressing a dependence upon Him. We just had a conversation like this at the men's prayer meeting a few weeks ago. Uh, when a child comes to you and they just nag and nag and nag because they want something and you know it's not good for them, well, then you reject that and say no. Kind of like James says, you're asking a miss. You want to consume it upon your lusts. But when a child comes to you as a mom or a dad, if you're a good mom or dad, they come to you and they have a legitimate need, don't you just feel an overwhelming sense of satisfaction to supply the needs of your child? They're dependent upon me. They've come to me, and I uh, joy in supplying their need. Well, if we feel that way as earthly moms and dads, how much the more the perfect Heavenly Father? He knows what we have need of, and He is sympathetic towards those needs, and it's His joy to fulfill them. And so when we pray, we're expressing faith, we're expressing dependence. It's an acknowledgement that everything we have comes from Him. It's good for our soul, and it's exactly what He's commanded us to do. So that's why we pray. So we can be confident that our Heavenly Father not only knows our needs, but is sympathetic towards them. He has compassion upon us and our struggles. When you feel that no one else knows or cares about your needs, we can be what? We can be assured that God knows and He cares, He's sympathetic. Next of all, we see biblically that our Heavenly Father not only knows our needs, but He also knows our nature. And for this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. I know we're jumping around. Hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. In this passage, Jesus is assuring us that we, have, that we are extremely valuable to God and that because He places so much value upon us, we can be confident that He'll always care for us. Verse 29, Jesus points out that God exercises His sovereign care even over lowly sparrows. His point is, if there's that much care there for the lowly sparrows, then how much the more for those whom He has adopted into His family via the sacrifice of His precious Son. Then, in Matthew chapter 10, the further contrast in verse 30, he says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. His point is that extreme care, yes, but also extreme knowledge, intimate knowledge. God knows everything about you. All the bad stuff you try to hide from others, he already knows. All the stuff you are ashamed of and feel guilty of, that you would be devastated if others found out, he already knows. He knows us intimately. He knows everything about us. Beyond knowing our needs, He knows our nature. 
It's not an overstatement to say that God, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so if you're here this morning, and especially if you're a young person, growing up with that angst and anxiety of your youth, feeling as if you're alone in the world, your parents don't understand, others don't understand, there's people all around you, but you feel alone. God the Father knows you. He knows your secrets. He knows your struggles. And uh, in, the, in the moment, now, if you're a Christian and you're feeling, well, that seems intrusive. God knows everything about me. Please take it as a comfort. You don't need to hold anything back. You don't need to be ashamed of those things before God in the sense that he already knows and is sympathetic towards those things. If you're a Christian, understand that you can speak openly to your Heavenly Father about those things because, again, he already knows. He knows you intimately. So have you ever felt alone in this life? Have you ever felt that no one really understood you? Have you felt that no, uh, that you never really fit in with any particular group of people? Maybe you felt lonely, isolated. No one understands your particular struggles, whether physical, whether material, mental, emotional. The assurance that Jesus gives us in this passage is that God the Father knows everything about us, even down to the number of hairs on our head. That's an intimate knowledge which should give us the confidence to approach him without pretense, without hesitation, but we can come boldly to his throne to find help in times of need. Our Heavenly Father not only knows what we have need of before we ask, but he knows who we are before we even say a word. Again, no need or sense in trying to pretend that we're something we're not as we approach God in prayer. He understands who we are, why we think the way we think, why we do the things we do. Again, he understands us better than we understand ourselves. And so just lay it all on the table and pour out your heart to your Heavenly Father. Whereas we may be on guard in our relationships with others, there's no need to be on guard with God. Nor does it make any sense to be, frankly. We are an open book to our Heavenly Father. So we might as well be honest and vulnerable with Him. He knows us. He knows our struggles. And despite knowing all of our sin and shortcomings, He loves us. Continually working in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. If we have time, and we may not, but if we have time, towards the end of the message, we'll talk a little bit about discipline, about how the Father disciplines us uh, if we belong to Him. But we understand that even that discipline in our life is for the purpose of molding and shaping us to become more like Jesus. And so it's still a tender, fatherly, fatherly-like care because He knows where our weaknesses and struggles are, so He works in our life for our, the greater good to make us more like Jesus. We often hide our deepest struggles and most embarrassing sins from other people. Uh, and although some may feel intruded upon, knowing that God knows us better than we know ourselves, please understand that ought to bring you a sense of liberation. You don't have to hide. You don't have to be somebody else when you talk to your Heavenly Father. Isn't that liberating? Doesn't that give you a sense of freedom? I hope it does. So as we face this life, we can do so without fear because we have a loving Heavenly Father who knows our every need and knows everything about our nature, and He's still on your side working everything for your good, even the difficulties, because you're precious and valuable in His sight through Jesus. So your Heavenly Father knows you. He values you. He's invited you into relationship with Himself. As a believer, you must learn how to lean into that relationship. An essential discipline then uh, in that relationship is what? All relationships really thrive upon communication, don't they? And so part of leaning into that relationship with our Heavenly Father is learning how to pray. So Matthew chapter 6 again, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
And so immediately in that one passage dealing with intimate relationship with God, Father, but immediately acknowledging that he is holy. Hallowed be your name. That's the privilege that we have. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, As Christian people, we must learn to appropriate by faith the fact that God is our Father. Christ taught us to pray, Our Father. This eternal, everlasting God has become our Father, and the moment we realize that, everything tends to change. He's our Father, and He's always caring for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son into the world and to the cross to die for our sins. This is our relationship. That is your relationship and our relationship to God. And the moment we realize it, he says, it transforms everything. It's interesting sometimes when we pray. All of a sudden, we go from just speaking to our friends to praying, and all of a sudden, we're praying in 15th century English. Thee and thou... Lord, thou art holy. <laughs> uh, where's this coming from? I wonder. Uh, people switch and flip an odd switch sometimes when they pray, become rigidly formal all of a sudden. And I get it. We want to ensure that we're reverential towards our Heavenly Father because He is the Holy Heavenly Father. I understand that. On the other hand, sometimes that rigid formality can serve as a wall that we erect between us and the Father and really keeps us, sometimes I think, from a, a legitimate vulnerability. Although we want to be careful to honor our Heavenly Father when we pray in His holiness, sometimes we go a little bit too far, forgetting that God has invited us into a loving, vulnerable relationship with Himself. We can pour out our hearts to Him with honesty and transparency. Well, according to Jesus, as He gives us the model prayer, and we're not going to have time, obviously, to do an exposition of it this morning, but I'll pull out a few points for you. As Jesus encourages us to pray to the Father in Matthew chapter 6, he speaks of adoration. Pray to the Heavenly Father and say, Lord, hallowed be your name. You are holy and you are set apart. Allow me to recognize you as holy. And I pray that your name will be sanctified and set apart as holy on earth as well, that others will recognize your holiness, that you'll receive the worship and glory that you deserve. And so adoration, worshiping him for who he is, for what he has done, especially through Christ. And so we hallow his name. Next of all, as you pray to your heavenly father, uh, you pray for provision. This is not a, you don't need to feel as if you're taking advantage of your relationship with the father because you're asking him for things. As I said to you earlier with that analogy of a, a child coming to his parents or her parents with legitimate needs, it's a joy for a parent to provide. Plus, the Lord has told us to come to him to pray for our daily provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's dependency as well, because that's a daily prayer. I need you today, and I need you every single day. So give us this day our daily bread, and he delights to provide for us. And so we pray for provision. And that could be material provision, that could be spiritual provision, uh, that could be a prayer for wisdom, uh, but it's an expression of absolute dependence upon our Father. So adoration, provision, and then Jesus tells us that we ought to, as we pray to the Heavenly Father, pray for forgiveness. This is not a forgiveness which a sinner, an unbeliever, prays for in order to be saved, but this is that daily forgiveness. This is that picture of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. You don't need to be entirely washed because you're already saved, but the fact is our feet get dirty from day to day. And so we come to our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. 
I failed uh, in acts of commission. I've uh, committed sin. I have failed to uh, uh, to uh, live in the way that you've instructed me. And so there's acts of co- uh, omission as well. And we pray and seek his forgiveness. And then you know what we do? When you come to your heavenly father and you seek his forgiveness, you know what you do after you confess your sin? By faith, you accept the fact that you're forgiven. Right? You confess your sin and he is faithful and he is just. And so your forgiveness of sin is, uh, the assurance of that forgiveness is based upon what? The nature of God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And so our assurance of forgiveness when we come to our Heavenly Father is not based upon our goodness, is not based upon on how well we have confessed, is not based upon how strong our faith is when we confess, it's based upon what we know about the nature of God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you confess your sin, and by faith you say, Lord, thank you. I might not feel it, but thank you. I know that you're forgiving, and I know your promises. So adoration, provision, forgiveness. And then we pray for protection from temptation. This is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, lead us not into temptation. We pray that our Heavenly Father would protect us from evil and temptation. It's an acknowledgement that we're weak, that we're dependent, that we can't do life on our own, but we need His mercy. We need his restraining hand, and so we pray for protection. That's a little outline for you as you seek to lean into your relationship with the Father and learn how to pray. And so the Father has adopted you. You're an adopted child this morning. He knows you. He knows your needs. He knows your nature. He's invited you into a relationship with himself, which is enjoyed through prayer. Next of all, we're going to see that God has presented himself as a, perfect, as a perfect heavenly father who also forever keeps us. He forever keeps us. Sadly, many of us have had relationships with our earthly fathers, which have left us with deep-seated feelings of insecurity. Have you been abandoned by a father? Had an absentee father? There may be much about our present personal struggles which could be traced back to uh, feelings of instability and insecurity that we experience as children. Absolutely. Maybe one or both of our parents left us at an early age. Maybe they weren't physically absent, but maybe they're emotionally absent. Although it can be helpful to look back at our upbringing in order to understand some of our present struggles, our new relationship with God as our Heavenly Father means that none of us need to be defined by those things. As a perfect Heavenly Father, God is perfectly committed to us and will never abandon us. Hebrews chapter 13 says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We should not project any of our past insecurities onto God. John chapter 10 verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And what does he say next? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is emphasizing the relationship he has with God as Father, but he's also stating that our security rests in the fact that God is Father. If you're a Christian this morning, you're saved because the Father has given you to the Son. That's what Jesus says. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. And he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me. Have you ever thought about this with your salvation? If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ repenting of your sin, embracing Him as Savior and Lord, if you've done that, believing uh, savingly, you've only done that because God the Father has given you to the Son. 
That's a very secure transaction. Jesus says, my father has given them to me, and he's greater than all. He says, I give them eternal life, but no one will be able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Your security rests in the father's ability to keep you, right? It doesn't rest in your worthiness, doesn't result, uh, rest in your performance, doesn't rest in your obedience. The security of your salvation rests in the father's ability to keep you. And Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, something else interesting here. So in John chapter 10, you have the security of our salvation based upon the relationship between the Son and the Father. God the Father gives you to the Son. The Son gives you eternal life. You are secure, uh, and that cannot be undone. But Romans chapter 8, which you've already seen, says this in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. What do we have here? So God the Father gives you to the Son. The Son gives you uh, eternal life. You're secure in the hand of the Father. How is that all effectuated? Through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you and uh, what enables you now to cry, Abba, Father. So what we see in all of this is that the security of our salvation is as secure as the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our salvation is entirely secure because it's entirely within the loving hands of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The entire Trinity is involved in this security. God the Father and God the Son are perfectly united in applying divine power and authority to keep us secure in our salvation, the Holy Spirit being the one who effectuates it all. And so, if you feel hopelessly adrift upon the waves of your own obedience, am I secure, am I not secure, what's my standing with God like, please read your Bible. That betrays an unbiblical understanding of salvation. We are absolutely secure, adopted into his family, and he will never leave us and never forsake us. Romans chapter 8, long passage, we're running out of time, but I'm going to read it anyway. Romans 8, 26 through 39, says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's that wonderful golden chain of salvation from being foreknown all the way to being glorified and not one link is broken for any of us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to this, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You understand the reasoning there? If you have been saved... Where in the world would your insecurity come from? If you have been saved, you've been saved because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that if the Father has given his Son for you, then what in the world else could he ever withhold from you? There's nothing else that that he could ever look at and say, well, I will give you my Son, but that's, that's, that's too valuable to give you. He's given us the most valuable gift one could ever give, so what in the world else could he ever withhold from us? 
So if you've been saved, understand that God is fully committed, He keeps you secure, and He will withhold no good thing from you. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here this morning and you have some background where you have been betrayed by an earthly father, abandoned by an earthly father, been subject to an absentee father, understand it's incumbent upon you not to project that sense of fatherhood upon your understanding of God. God loves you more than any other could possibly love you. He sent his son for you, and with his son, that's that signal to you that there's nothing you would ever withhold, and I am perfectly secure within that love. Well, the Father loves us. The Father has adopted us into his family. He values us. He knows us. He hears us. He provides for us, and he keeps us. And lastly, we're going to end on this note. As our loving Heavenly Father, we know that he's our Father and we are his children because he also disciplines us. And so we're going to end in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Have you ever met those parents who seem to kind of let their kids do whatever they want to do? Have you ever met that parent who says, oh, I don't discipline my child because I love them too much? (laughs) Have you heard that? Or some variation of that? Well, we're going to learn biblically that it is love which drives a parent to seek to form the character and behavior of their child. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, let's put daughter in there too. My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. God disciplines his children. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. One of the privileges we have as believers is that God the Father is doing a continual work in our lives of sanctification. 
And that sanctification is kind of like taking a lump of clay that's filled with, with impurities. And what that potter does with that clay is continually works through that with, with his thumbs and kind of works out those impurities. Well, sometimes that is not a pleasant experience. Use another analogy. Sometimes you have a vine and it's growing. And in order to get that vine to produce fruit, sometimes you have to prune it. God the Father is the vine dresser. There's some times in our lives where he has to come along and he needs to prune. He needs to cut this off and cut that off. And you know what? That little snip doesn't feel so good. But at the end of it, what's the result? Well, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so, as believers, if our ultimate desire is Christ-likeness, holiness, righteousness, if our ultimate desire is to experience the joy that accompanies a holy life and to be divested of our love for the world, if that's our ultimate priority, then we welcome the work of the vine dresser. We welcome the work of the potter. Or do your work in my life. It's not pleasant in the moment. Yes, and you know what this is like because sometimes your attitude stinks. And my attitude stinks. And sometimes our behavior stinks. And uh, the Lord works in us, whether he convicts us through his word, whether he uses a loving admonition from a fellow brother, or whether he just gives us over sometimes to the consequence of our own bad decisions. Uh, The Lord disciplines. So, the Lord disciplines. That is an indication of love. And so the writer of Hebrews makes it very plain that if we do not experience a loving discipline of the Lord, then that's an indication that we don't belong to him says, you're illegitimate children. If you have kids, you can understand this passage. You do this with your own kids. And you probably said something to them like, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Uh, and, and when you're disciplining properly, you're disciplining for the good of that child. Not punitively. I need to inflict pain because they've done something wrong. But you're seeking to shape character. You're, you're seeking to protect. You're seeking to educate. This is what the Lord does with us as he forms us more and more into Christ-likeness. It's not appropriate to withhold discipline from your child if you love them, nor would it be appropriate for you to discipline somebody else's kid, right? The Lord disciplines us because we belong to him. According to verse 8 of Hebrews 12, if one never experiences that, then frankly, they need to question their relationship with the Father. And according to verse 10, God's purpose in all of this is so that we might share in his holiness. Well, sometimes we face trials and struggles in life. You don't have to look at those things as punitive. What did I do wrong? No. The Lord's molding and shaping us. He's strengthening us. He's applying pressure to our faith so that our faith can rear up under that pressure and be strengthened. Understand, he's just forming you into Christ-likeness. So when discipline comes, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done something terribly wrong. It simply means that God loves you and he knows what's best for you and he's forming you into Christ-likeness. Through trials, he's working to develop the character of Christ. Well, in conclusion, you struggle with loneliness? Your Heavenly Father knows you. You struggle with feelings of worthlessness because your parents demean you? Your Heavenly Father values you. You struggle with feelings of anxiety? Your Heavenly Father will provide for you. You struggle with feelings of insecurity? Your Heavenly Father will keep you eternally. You struggle with feelings of rejection. God the Father forgives you and restores you and cleanses you. You struggle with feelings of your own personal failure. The Lord disciplines you in your life to shape and to form you, to learn and to grow from your failures. 
Are you suffering in this life? Struggling with suffering in this life? Difficulty in this life? Understand that the Lord is working in you and He's fully committed to ultimately glorify you completely in the end. So we've all had different upbringings, which have affected us in different ways. Some of us have, have, have fond memories of our childhood, recognizing that our parents are, have lovingly shaped us. And if that's you this morning, then just thank God. <laughs> thank God and commit yourself to be that type of father for your children. Some of us have fond memories. Others of us, however, recognize that our parents have shaped us into what we are today. And that's in a negative sense. Not through love, but through abuse, through absence, through apathy. And these things have left an indelible mark on us. But the fact of the matter is, God has saved us given, us, given us His Holy Spirit, all things that pertain to life and godliness, so that we can overcome whatever dysfunction uh, we've brought into our salvation. Because you know what? The only type of people, uh, uh, we put it this way, salvation is for the dysfunctional because there are no other types of people, right? And uh, But God has given us everything we need to overcome this. The good news is that in all of this, God knows that we are all the product of a sinful fallen world. He knows that when we came to Christ for salvation, we brought a lot of sinful baggage. We came as broken people. He's designed salvation for just a people, like I said, because there's no other kind. Now that we're saved, we have a relationship with God as our perfectly heavenly Father, perfect Heavenly Father, and it's within that relationship where wonderful healing can take place. As our perfect Father, God knows us, knows who we are, knows our needs, knows our struggles, knows our strengths, weaknesses, and so on. He knows your life experiences. He knows how you became the person that you are today. He knows why you do the things that you do. He knows why you think the way that you think. Whereas you're still trying to figure yourself out, he already knows. Even knowing everything about us, he values us. We're precious to him through Christ. Not only does he know us and value us, but he secures us, fully committed to bring us all the way through to glorification without losing any that belong to Christ. Not only does he know us and value us and secure us, but he also hears us. And so he delights to have you come to him in prayer. And he also disciplines us. Well, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what I said to you, all of this applies to those who are believers. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're not trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, nor are you following him as your Lord, you must be saved. You don't have this type of relationship with God as your Heavenly Father, but that invitation is open to you. In order to enter into that relationship with the Heavenly Father, you must come through Jesus. And so Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you would have a relationship with God as your Heavenly Father, you must come through Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so the invitation is there. You're at enmity regardless of your background, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of whatever experience you've had with your earthly father. God the Heavenly Father is extending open arms saying, Come, I will adopt you into my family through Jesus Christ. And all the benefits that we looked at in Scripture this morning will apply to you as well. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you'd help us to, as we pray to you and as we call you our Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand the weightiness of that title, Father. 
Help us to understand what it means about your nature and how you relate to us. For those of us this morning who have struggled with our relationship with our own earthly fathers, I pray that you'd help us to allow our understanding of you as our Heavenly Father to be shaped by Scripture and not through our experience. For those who have struggles in their past with their earthly father, we pray that they would learn anew what it is to have a relationship with a father, you as our perfect Heavenly Father. So help them to lean into that relationship, help them to know how to relate to you, um, having had a difficult relationship with their dad, not having an affectionate relationship with their dad, not having a relationship where they could share their emotions or pour out their heart. I pray that you'd help them now to learn that they do have access to all of that with you and then help them to overcome those hurdles that may exist in their own heart that keeps them from relating to you that way. Help us to learn more and more what it is to be your children, all the benefits that you've given us as uh, your children, and then help us to know how to live as obedient children. We pray also this morning for those who are not yet Christians. We pray that they would see their need for salvation. On the one hand, we know you've offered you to our, you've offered yourself to us as Father. We also know that those who don't come to you through Jesus Christ are at enmity and have incurred your judgments and your wrath. And so we pray that you will impress upon the hearts of those who are not yet saved their need for Jesus, their need for salvation. Yes, to escape judgment, but also to be welcomed into your family. And so I pray that you would save some this morning. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for your fatherhood. Thank you for your word that helps us to learn more and more what that means for us. We pray you'd help us to grow in our relationship to you. Help us to know what it is to cry, Abba, Father, through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus, through whom you have made all of this possible. Amen.